Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Carol Kellerman from Citizens Budget Commission. We're happy to be joined by Carol today. Maria is out, uh, but we have another interesting discussion on deck. If you've missed any of our recent episodes, find us wherever you get your podcasts at What's the Data Point. And we also post all the episodes to the Gotham Gazette website and the CBC website. And give us feedback anywhere you get your podcasts. You can rate us. You can subscribe. You can let your networks know. And, of course, we're on Twitter. I'm at TweetBenMax. Maria is at Maria Doulis. CBC is at CBCNY. And so today, today we're very happy to be joined by Liz Glazer, the director of the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. Welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And before we get into our discussion with Liz, here's Carol with today's data point. Today's data point is 5,000, which is the target jail population that will allow the city to fully close the jail facilities located on Rikers Island, a goal the de Blasio administration has set to be accomplished over the next decade. The current total jail population at Rikers and other city facilities is about 8,200. While that number is significantly reduced from years past, it is still too high to make full closure of Rikers Island feasible. In order to continue to shrink the jail population, the administration and its partners are planning to continue a variety of efforts, which we will hear about and discuss today. As the city implements its plans, there are concerns about jail siting, costs, crime control, and many potential pitfalls that could occur along the way. There will also be a new mayor in a little more than three years who may have a different vision or approach. To discuss the city's effort to close Rikers, the challenges, and more, we're joined by Liz Glazer, who is Mayor de Blasio's Director of the Office of Criminal Justice. Liz has a long and distinguished career in the criminal justice arena, including serving as Secretary for Public Safety to the Governor and as an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the storied U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District. Welcome, Liz. Thanks so much. So Carol gave us a little bit of your background, and we obviously want to discuss the initiatives you're leading, this plan to close Rikers Island, efforts around criminal justice reform. But before we do some of that, tell us a little bit more, tell listeners a little bit more about your your career to this point. Sure. So when I think about my career, I feel it's a lot more accidental than it seemed when uh, Carol sort of read out a few of the things that I had done. Um, I grew up in New York. I've always been fascinated and loved cities and have lived here most of my life and more or less right out of college started to work for the city government first for the city council president and then for what was the fledgling department of juvenile justice which actually housed kids who'd been arrested it was at a time when actually halfway around the globe there were a lot of refugees coming out of vietnam and cambodia and i had always been very interested in refugee issues. And so I went to Southeast Asia and worked in the camps for a few years there and was interested when I came back in maybe doing that work um, as a lawyer. And so I went to law school. And again, through sort of just a series of accidents, um, I thought I was going to go work for the ACLU on their refugee stuff. But the U.S. Attorney's Office paid a little better, and I had a lot of debts. <laughs> so I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, which are the federal prosecutors here in Manhattan, and arrived there at um, this interesting kind of turning point where the office had been very, very active in taking down La Cosa Nostra, the mafia, and it had a series of cases. But it was also at a time when murders in this city were tipping over 2,200. Just to give you a sense, or your listeners a sense, they're under 300 now. 
and I became head of that organized crime section. Who was the U.S. attorney then? So Rudy Giuliani hired me. Most of my career was under Mary Jo White. Interesting. Um, so we started to think about using racketeering cases to, um, to address the crime problem and really sort of street gangs. And so I did a huge amount of work on that. And then I sort of kicked around a few other places in the city and uh, another prosecutor's office and um, ultimately went to work for Andrew Cuomo when he was the attorney general and I was his special counsel. And when he became governor, I, I became what's called the Deputy Secretary for Public Safety, which is um, uh, in every area of the government, there's one secretary who oversees the agencies, and I oversaw the public safety agencies, so corrections and National Guard and Homeland and an array of others. Um, and after a few years there, the mayor was elected, and about four or five months into his term, he came to work in my current job. Okay, so that current job, um, you are leading the mayor's office of criminal justice, so it's a little different than having a separate city agency, but Correct. just explain, you know, just the contours of, of what that role means. Yep, yep. Um, so the office is really the policy advisor to the mayor. Um, when I think about it, I think that it really sort of ter- serves two functions. You know, when we think about the criminal justice system, uh, it's not a monolithic thing. It's not like the police department or the sanitation department, which is uh, a mayoral agency. Um, the criminal justice system consists of courts that are run by the state and district attorneys who are independently elected and uh, defenders who have a completely different thing. But but how do we operate in some way together um, in order to actually have a fairly functioning system? And so very much the role that my office plays is a little bit kind of the hidden hand to try and help coordinate those things. So that's on sort of one end. And on the other end, um, I really sort of view us as the research and development arm of kind of the criminal justice system. You know, we should always be thinking about how to make the system fairer and more effective. And so a lot of the things that my office does is think that through with our partners and try to then realize that through, um, you know, operational efforts. And is that where then you'll present research, you'll present recommendations to the first deputy mayor, or, you know, how, how does that off, how does that work in terms of, you know, you're incubating things or you're, you know, you're working on things and you want to push the mayor, you know, he's, he's looking obviously for your advice as you, you know, outlined it, as it being sort of this, um, this policy shop and, mm-hmm. and research operation within the mayor's office on these issues. Yeah, so I think it really, uh, a lot of it is organic. It comes out of the work that we do with our partners and there, you know, obviously the budget is an important policy tool and so many times these things are teed up in that way. And, uh, and so there are sort of an array of different ways that ideas, you know, come about um, and then get realized uh, and implemented. So let's talk about some of those, those implementations, those ideas that are moving ahead. What are, how would you characterize sort of some of the big buckets, big initiatives that you're working on or you have worked on that are now being pushed forward by the more of the implementation side of things. Yeah, well, I think the whole effort, you know, as Carol kind of opened with, to move off of Rikers Island is obviously an enormous piece of work, you know, for a minute on that. When I think about it, 
it's not, I don't really think about it as a closed Rikers effort, although surely that's our goal. It's really about building justice because this isn't simply a real estate issue. And in order to, for example, shrink the population or do any of the other things, there has to be a really sort of significant change in the way in which the entire justice system, all those folks that I mentioned, operate and operate together. So that's one enormous piece of work. The other piece of work that intensely interested in has been a little bit more below radar, but we've spent a lot of time in it, um, is to think about how it is that we build safety and how it is that we think about safety as more than simply the absence of crime, meaning you know, we all live together, <laughs> and we try to live together peaceably, and uh, we use enforcement as a way to enforce rules. And what we've seen over the past few years in this city is that the foot has really come off the gas of enforcement. Um, arrests are just down like crazy, stop and frisk, you know, famously down a lot, summonses are down, and crime continues to go down. And so the question is, as we shrink the amount of enforcement that we have, are we seeing, and I think we have some evidence of this, that really what's happening is that there are these organic and kind of durable networks in neighborhoods, just the way in which we live with one another, that are the more, the, sort of the more effective way to kind of keep the peace. And we see that in sort of a whole array of areas. So we have in about 22 of our neighborhoods that drive most of the shootings an effort that is called the crisis management system and it focuses on one piece of it is called cure violence and essentially what it is is there are people who we hire from the neighborhood who themselves have been in trouble with the law um, previously and um, they work to kind of identify where disputes are and to really mediate them and stop them before they escalate. And this has now been built up into a much kind of bigger effort with uh, employment and other features to it. Um, and we did an evaluation. We had a university do an evaluation of it. And what it showed was really fascinating. It was really three things. One is violence in those neighborhoods, as opposed to comparable neighborhoods, was down even more sharply than it was in those neighborhoods. But even more importantly, I think, was that people's attitudes towards violence and people's attitudes towards um, the authorities, towards police, had just changed. That, you know, last year I would have never called the police. This year I'd think about it. Last year I might have used much more violent methods. This year I, I may step back. Um, and so I think how we, th what sort of the next frontier in crime is, is thinking about how a whole array of other tools, not just enforcement, architecture, the way a neighborhood is arranged, um, these kinds of efforts like cure violence are really kind of where we need to live. Interesting. So Trying to systematize <laughs> some of these things that may have developed unintentionally, organically, or sort of in little pilot areas and how to make them more widespread. Right. It just be the way that we live yes. as opposed to being an initiative. 
you know, that's a good way to put it. And that makes me think, and you didn't mention, but that makes me think about this tie-in with this um, neighborhood or community policing strategy. And, you know, one of the things that continues to catch me up is that, you know, this is being rolled out. The mayor continues to hold his, you know, monthly briefings with the NYPD. Crime stats largely, you know, continue to look like they're going in the right direction. And, you know, credits it towards neighborhood policing. Now, you talked about the cure violence and, and showing some research that showed its its worth, but on the neighborhood policing, we don't really have that yet. And and one of the concerns I have is just someone sort of trying to take in the facts in front of me and, and assess them is, you know, this continues to be rolled out uh, precinct after precinct, and we don't really know yet if it's really effective, right? Right. Um, so I think that... And, and if I can just step back for a second, sure. the sad truth is that no one actually knows why crime went down or why it will go up. You know, the greatest experts look at it, and we know little bits and pieces, right? But I do think, to your point, it is very, very important for us to be able to have some kind of evaluation of what those bits and pieces are, and I think that that's, that will be coming. I think that one of the interesting things, and again, I think this is sort of maybe a sign of a little bit of a shift, is cure violence in the police department um, have obviously separate roles, but um, respectful roles with one another. And at these monthly briefings that the mayor and the uh, commissioner does, cure violence plays a role. You know, the mayor often calls them out. so I think, you know, what the police department is doing uh, is really quite huge uh, and important and maybe gets less credit than actually it should, that there has really been a, quite a seismic shift in the way in which the police department um, is organized and operates, what, what the directions are to folks on the street, how it is they recruit and for what kinds of skill sets they recruit, how they train, uh, and I think it's been, you know, obviously it's still in process, but an incredibly important thing. And I think it sort of always comes back to kind of this issue of, you know, the police are the ones who are there every day uh, on the street, and everyone knows how to call 911. So no matter what the issue is, whether it's in their bailiwick or not, they end up being the first responder. And I think we're at a point in our city where we're trying to really figure out in a much more robust way how police are perhaps the first responders, but that there is a really effective handoff to others, civilians, maybe mental health workers, or whatever the issue is, to address the problems that come first to the police, but aren't really necessarily in the police's bailiwick. So you, there's a couple of things you mentioned um, that I, I think are worth pulling apart. You mentioned how enforcement has been scaled way back. There's a variety of aspects to that. You know, there's legislation that was passed to uh, create some new civil violations mm-hmm. that the police are then also tasked with using in most cases as opposed to criminal corresponding mm-hmm. violations and, and using summonses as opposed to arrests. And so, there, you know, there's some different parts of that. But, you know... The discussion around enforcement easing up, arrests being way, way down by thousands and thousands and thousands, and crime going down, I find that that discussion often misses the crime we're talking about there is the major crime categories, right? That those numbers of the of the major felonies 
it, it's really across the board um, that we're but, seeing that we're seeing these drops. Uh -huh. um, I, you know, so that everything that we count, which are, which are, you know, sort of what we're required to count for the FBI and for Comstat and things like that, all of those are down. Mm -hmm. um, misdemeanors are sort of down the most. Um, but isn't that so that's really where the choice comes in? We don't, you yeah. know, on some of the misdemeanors, we actually don't fully know if less is actually happening or less is just being enforced, right? On sort of the, that's, that's a little bit of where I'm getting at, or correct me if, if you know, you think I'm wrong or if I'm empirically right, right. wrong, you know, that on the major violent, you know, crime robberies that are reported, we right. kind of know those for sure. The, some of the nonviolent crimes and misdemeanors, a lot of that, the level of crime that we sort of know about is really based on enforcement. Well, so crime, this is a little wonky, sure. but, um, but crime really, how do we measure crime? Crime is really complaints. That's what it is. That's so, not enforcement, so, it's complaints, it's people calling. So we have crime, which is going down a bit, mm -hmm. you know, actually more than a bit. And then we have enforcement, meaning arrests, misdemeanors, summonses, going down a ton. Right. Not so much in felonies, but misdemeanors, so not so much in the you know, serious offenses, but very much so in the low-level offenses. And I, I mean, I think there are really kind of, you know, two questions. And we saw it over the kind of controversy over stop and frisk, you know, when the mayor was running for office and there were concerns, if you stop, stop and frisk, you know, will we see a real uptick in violent crime? And we saw that that wasn't the case. And I think sort of the big question for us is obviously we've worked hard to get to where we are, you know, to have the lowest crime rate in the nation. And da -da. But the question is, to what degree can enforcement be reduced and some of these other organic things come to play to enforce the rules while crime goes down? That's sort of one set of questions. I think the thing that you may be getting to is to what degree is sort of letting the foot off the gas on lower level crimes or offenses that people view as sort of their quality of life, to what degree is that connected to in better or degraded quality of life? And we don't have good measures of that, but it is an incredibly important thing that we need to figure out. So let's, I guess, move towards the, the Rikers closure and the jail sighting. That's been some of the most recent news, certainly coming out of the mayor's office um, and from the city and working with the city council, of course, and we're ge gearing up for some of these um, <laughs> borough processes and mm -hmm. processes mm -hmm. on the sighting of facilities or the rehabilitation of existing facilities that will probably get quite contentious, already is a little bit contentious. Um, so, there's going to be four facilities is the plan. There's already, there are already some that are in use. Um, generally speaking, you know, how do you capture where we're at and what, what significant progress is going to, is planned for the next year? Sure. So we're on a quite a fast pace here, really on every aspect and certainly on the, you know, site selection and moving forward with that. Um, your listeners may or may not know that there's a quite a complicated land use process um, in the city of New York. They Whenever probably you want, know. <laughs> <laughs> want to want to build something, and and you know, with a lot of input from a lot of folks. And so, where we are in that process, and what we expect to see over the next year, is 
we've had a pretty intensive six months um, in which we've tried to figure out conceptually what would be at each of the sites. So this isn't a design, but it's what actually would need to be in the buildings, um, everything from obviously the jails and programming space and things like that to potentially community space and other things. And so two weeks ago, we released what's called a scoping study. And what the scoping study does, and it's available you know, for anyone to look at, um, is first it says here are the sites that we would propose, and then here's what we think more or less the box would look like and what would be inside the box. When, when the mayor announced this early on and he mm -hmm. expressed the idea that we should decentralize and the facility should be in the communities where the uh, detainees come from, he said right away, we won't have any facility in Staten Island and you didn't propose one. Why is that? Are there no detainees at Rikers from Staten Island? Uh, a tiny, tiny number. So there may be a little north of 200 folks from Staten Island. This is in a population of 8,300. We anticipate by the time these new facilities open, now in about nine years, um, there will probably be about 100, maybe fewer. Uh, and so that, that Just wasn't was cost effective yeah. to build a facility. That's interesting. I don't know that I've I've heard those numbers, so that that that's interesting. The um the idea behind having these facilities located where they're going to be is also proximity to courthouses, right? Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. idea that the transportation issues going from Rikers to to court appearances creates all sorts of problems, um, and to and to shorten that and alleviate those problems and those costs is that a key piece of the equation or, or? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's uh, kind of the foundation of why we want things in kind of city centers um, is that, you know, there's pretty good evidence that uh, people do better. <laughs> Both people who are incarcerated and people who work in these facilities when they're closer to um, family supports uh, and other things and not isolated, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be, you know, way off out of sight. So I think that's kind of maybe the most important and fundamental issue. The second thing is um, there are absolutely efficiencies in two different ways. One is just building new buildings um, that will take into consideration um, kind of better ways of supervising people who are incarcerated actually have room for programming, which is quite important, not just to reduce violence inside, but also as a way to prepare people to leave. And then absolutely, there are sort of system efficiencies. Um, you know, one of the things that drives our jail population is how long cases take. And so if it is, if we are sort of more nimble about getting folks to their court appearances, um, that will be an important thing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but part of this plan, even given that, is that there won't be an expected reduction in the correction uh, headcount among correction officers? That, that That is not part of the plan? I don't, I'm not sure how those numbers add up. Right. So, so I think it, whether we move on or off the island, how many staff there are going to be in the jails is going to be the same because how many staff there is 
um, is really related to what the size of the population is. So that's, you know, as the population reduces, obviously there's sort of some marginal things that happen, mm -hmm. um, but as you get sort of to big chunks of folks, you know, when you, when you, um, when the population is essentially half of what it was is when we started, I imagine that there will be, you know, changes in staffing. And there's also, I've heard, you know, some discussion that the, the violence on Rikers Island, A, is partly due to some of the structures there, um, you know, the physical plant also has to do with the, uh, you know, that while you all have been increasing programming and education, also mm -hmm. issues around that mm -hmm. and lack of community connection, which you're trying to uh, enhance in the new facilities, but also that when you, you're sort of concentrating Mm -hmm. people there for the most serious mm -hmm. offenses. Is that, mm -hmm. is that, does that well, match up with your... Well, the population has changed quite a bit, you know, so you think about where we were in the, you know, early 90s. Um, 20 plus thousand. 20 plus yeah. thousand, but also who was in, so low-level drug offenses and stuff like that. Today, when we look at our Rikers population, about who's detained there, Almost every single person is there for a felony, and over half of those folks are there because they've been charged with violent felonies. So those things don't necessarily translate to, you know, violence inside, but it's a very different mix. Um, so when you say that out of the 8,200, what, yeah. what portion of them are charged with felonies, approximately? So um, about 80 percent. Well, 80% are detainees, and almost every single one of those is charged with a felony, and then half of that 80% is. And what are the other 20% that are not de detainees? Are they people so, who violated parole? Yeah, so it's interesting. We have, um, you know, there's a difference between jail and prison. Jail across the country, it's not just in, um, in New York City, is for people who get sentenced to very short periods of time under a year in jail or for people who are awaiting trial, right. and for a bunch of other things. So about 10% of our population are city, are city sentenced. Okay. Um, and then we have about six or 700 who are there only because they violated parole. We have about double that who are there because they violated parole and they've committed another offense, but let's take those guys aside for a second. So. From data I saw from, you know, coming out of your, your office, at the end of last year, and we're almost getting closer to the end of this year, but mm -hmm. there were around 9,000 um, in city jails, mm -hmm. and about 7,000 were awaiting trial. Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, and so I, I hear that a number of them are have been arrested on felonies, but a lot of those are nonviolent felonies. So... Mm -hmm. Are you, you know, what's the approach in terms of making sure that, according to your philosophy, you know, that the people that don't need to be there while they're awaiting trial, mm -hmm. how do you get them out of, out of jail? So what somebody is charged with is not always linked to how risky they are. And in our system, New York is actually quite singular. We're one of only like six states where judges actually aren't allowed to consider whether the person is dangerous or is going to reoffend when they set bail or decide whether to hold them or not. So they can only decide whether or not they're going to base that on whether they're going to return to jail. Um, so our focus has really been uh, to be risk-based and to try and 
ensure that no one steps into jail who could be out. And a very big driver of the jail population reduction that we've seen over the last four years, you know, and it's gone down by over 25 percent, um, has actually been giving judges this option through a program called supervised release to um, just have somebody go back home with a very light touch. You know, they get a text message saying come to court um, or, you know, they may meet with somebody depending on sort of their level of risk. Um, so the idea here is in a very kind of meticulous way to make sure that judges have the options to be able to make sure that people aren't going to jail. And the second piece is where we do have violent uh, people charged with violent offenses, which are usually people who stay for longer because those cases are more complicated, really, really important that we try to shrink the amount of time that those cases stay while, of course, you know, making sure that justice is, um, is served. And so we have a very, very intensive effort um, with the courts and the defenders and the prosecutors and corrections um, that focuses on these cases and tries to make sure that every adjournment, the time between cases, is really um, as short as it can be and that every court appearance is meaningful. And that's had uh, a pretty significant effect, actually, um, in reducing the number of old cases. And could you talk about these parole violators? It's, it's a lot, yeah. you know, it's almost a thousand people yeah, yeah. who do something. Right. Any minor infraction, they don't call in when they're supposed to, they, they go out of the right. city for something. This is really the only option to punish them, is to send them back to jail. Well, what? it's an interesting thing. So uh, a parole, somebody who's on parole is somebody who's served a state sentence and then is under supervision by the state. And, um, and if they violate, which can be anything as minor as they have a dirty urine, they don't you know, meet a curfew, they fail to show up at, their off, you know, at the office, um, the state parole department can issue a warrant by state law, as soon as they issue that, that warrant, that person is required to be brought to the nearest local correctional facility in New York, it's Rikers, um, and held there until their state parole proceeding, determining whether they did this thing or not, is concluded. And so we have about six or 700 people in that, in that condition um, on Rikers Island. It's the only part of our population that actually is increasing. Um, and we're really trying to work hard with the state to do a couple of things to shrink that population. Um, but frankly, if no parole violator was on Rikers Island, we could close another jail. Right. That's why I brought it up. But it's also the only thing, I think, maybe there's something else, where it's not entirely under city control, because it's really dependent on the state not at all, and not all in city control. So um, there are a number of things that we're hoping and working with the state to see if they can do. One is before you drop a warrant, um, are there other kinds of sanctions short of that that you could do? Um, the second thing is if you do drop a warrant and the person ends up at Rikers, could we please shrink the amount of time it takes right. to do those hearings? People who are in that situation stay about twice as long as similarly situated Rikers folks. 
And that's, you know, there's a, a, a special courtroom on Rikers staffed by, you know, parole folks and defenders and, and state judges. Um, and so could we, could we shrink that amount of time? And then finally, um, you know, those are the things that we can just do that would be, or that the state could do that's within their control, but state legislation could also be passed that would say you don't automatically go to jail upon the dropping of a warrant, but rather just the way when you're arrested, a judge weighs whether or not you're so risky that you must be in jail. They could do that with right. the state too. And talk about uh, females, how many there are, and are, are you treating them, what, what their characteristics mm -hmm. are in terms of why they're there, and yep. are you treating yep, them yep. any differently? So, um, so we have about 600 women um, on Rikers Island right now out of the 8,300. Um, that's a population that's been going down quite a bit over the past few years um, with a lot of focus on sort of um, special services for them because they're often caregivers, you know, in their families. Um, they often have... Um, they, they look a lot like the men as far as charges and other things, but they have a much higher uh, rate of, um, of sort of behavioral health issues, and so they have um, more things that, you know, need to be addressed in order to really kind of stabilize. And so... When we, you say, sorry, when you yeah. say, do you, is that... What, what are behavioral health issues? And I mean, are you talking about eating disorders and so mental health, mental health, mental okay. health issues, substance use issues? Um, is sort of the two big things that behavioral health is kind of the the headline for. Okay. Um, and so we have a whole array of things going on right now to try and figure out um, how to better support them when they're inside, how to ensure that when they leave jail. Um, we have, for example, transitional housing. We have a whole series of things we're doing with different employers um, and others, but a real hope to be able to shrink that population. So we're in our last few minutes, uh, maybe four or five minutes, with Liz Glazer, the director of the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. Um, and thanks again for, for being here. I wanted to get clarity on a couple things. There's this big push to end cash bail. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean if it happens, and how does it work? Uh, it means bail can't be set for anybody, so anybody who, you know, can, can you yeah, just yeah, explain, totally, like, totally. you know, there's that's a big rallying cry. Absolutely. Attorney general candidates talking about it, you know. Yep, what yep. does that mean, and how does it work? Yeah, so in places where there isn't cash bail, um, meaning that you don't have to come with a suitcase of dollar bills, I mean, literally, that's what it means. Uh, take the federal system for example. In the federal system, um, a judge makes a determination as to whether or not the person will return to court, and in the federal system, as in most states, and whether or not the person might reoffend as a danger. And they then decide an array of things. They say, you know what, you can just walk out the door, and I, I know that you'll come back. Or they can say, you are such a risk, either of not coming back or of being a danger, I'm going to put you in, and that's called a remand. Or I am going to set bail, but you don't have to come with a suitcase of cash. I'm going to ask your relative to sign a bond that says, I promise to pay money or I promise to give up my house or my car, something that will make 
the person who's being released feel an obligation um, that they really need to return, otherwise their mother, their sister, their brother, whatever, is really going to be in trouble. And so that's really what it means. In New York State and in New York City, um, we have cash bail. Um, we also have a real kind of culture of release. About 70% of people who get arrested just walk out the door with nothing, just come back. Of people who are held in jail on bail, about half of them, even if you paid bail, could not walk out. And that's because either the judge did this remand thing, because the, the, in, in our system for very few crimes you can hold somebody in, or because they have a hold from another jurisdiction, a parole warrant, a probation warrant. So the city wants um, wants to end cash bail? Is that, is that a, an official city policy? Yeah. End cash bail, but add danger as a consideration. And so if those are combined and you have these supervised release programs that you're trying to mm -hmm. popularize more, you're trying to totally. put, you don't have control over judges, right? You, you No, but we created the programs sort with, of arm in arm sure. with the judges, defenders, and DAs, which is why I think, you know, about 9,000 people have been, um, I, are in supervised release since it started about a year and a half ago. So right, so you like can a, you, you know, work with your partners on that. You continue to push the use, yep. but it's not something the mayor can say. Exactly. We're just we don't doing. have direct control. Right. So you, you do these combination of, of things. Um, does, does that combination of things address and, and significantly reduce the racial disparities that we see with um, who is held on minor offenses, uh, the population in the city's jails, especially on Rikers, uh, because you know this this uh, you know criminalization of poverty yep, is yep. that does does that combination of things really get at that? So sadly, no. Um, you know, are the people who are in our city jails are largely African American and Latino, um, and I and we see this you know in, in our arrest numbers we see it throughout the criminal justice system. And I really think um, we can reduce the number of people who go through, but to address racial disparity, we have to do something so much more fundamental. And so uh, maybe I could just sort of leave you with this one thought. You know, when I look at maps of New York City, which I do a lot, um, crime is concentrated, incarceration is concentrated, but I could show you those same maps and asthma and low educational achievement and high unemployment and uh, you know broken facility, every sort of social distress that you could think of are all in the same places. Um, and there is some very fundamental work that we need to do um, of investment and organization um, about kind of what the social context is in which people grow up. Uh, and we have to be able to not only provide the opportunity for a job, a good education, good housing, but we have to be able to make people feel that there's actually hope and reality in that opportunity that's offered. Because I think in neighborhoods that suffer from this kind of distress, that there is a deep sense of estrangement from government, from civic society generally, um, and it is a fundamental issue that we must tackle. 
Let me ask you one quick short follow-up, and I think maybe Carol wants to take us out on a, on a question returning to your, uh, your career's work. The, um, there was an issue, the city had pledged to set up, um, to go back to the cash bail question, yep, and yep. while it still is part of the system, mm-hmm. um, had pledged to set up uh, ATMs, yep, yep. I believe, in, in the courthouses yep. or nearby precincts, um, and that had gotten off to a very slow start. I think the New York Times reported where, I mean, where is that at? Is that yeah, a little overblown? Being ex- okay. Don't read everything. They believe <laughs> right. everything you read in the press. So yeah, there are ATMs in every courthouse now. Um, there were some issues about, you know, we had them in one courthouse in Queens because that's where MCU, the bank, was able to put it, but, you know, defenders wanted it to be in another courthouse. So that's there now. Um, and yeah, that's- I, let me just say, I think it's important to have ATMs and people should have access to cash. This is not what's going to move the jail population. Sure, sure. No, I, I'm recognizing that, but also if there's small things that absolutely. like that that you can absolutely. do or promise to do, yeah, no, of course, we want no, to you know, see if those are being executed. Well, we, we very much appreciate the time. Um, <laughs> it's up to you. If we have time on a lighter note, I yes. wanted to note that when you graduated from law school, you were a law clerk to then D.C. Circuit Judge Ginsburg, and yeah. she's become kind of an icon, and I wanted to ask you whether what it was like to be her clerk, and was she an icon then, the way that she, among the clerks and in the court population, the way she's gotten to be nationally? Well, to us, she was always an icon. Uh, she's really a pretty remarkable person, and, you know, by then... Um, although it hadn't gotten perhaps as much celebrity, um, you know, her work in the area of women's rights and equality, um, you know, she argued the major cases before the Supreme Court, and that was already behind her. And so um, so she, to all of us and to, you know, much of the legal world was really a giant. Uh, and so when she was nominated to the Supreme Court, it seemed utterly fitting that she was sort of called... Uh, the third grade marshal of, uh, you know, of gender equality. And yeah, she was a wonderful person to clerk for. Um, she, uh, she took enormous care of her clerks, um, intellectually and otherwise, um, and was really attentive to making sure that we were able to kind of perform at the highest levels. Uh, she took a lot of care with our writing. That was something that was important to her. We used to joke that our our drafts would come back from her. She used them sort of like lined paper. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but she was she's a wonderful person, and uh, and I it gives me at least great pleasure that she's become uh, such a celebrity. Great. Well, Liz Glazer, Director of the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, we thank you for the time and the thoughts, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Bye.